the Pacino Pod. I'm Callie. And I am Jane. And today we have a very special guest. We have Yana on the podcast, otherwise known as at Little Succubus on Twitter.com. How's it going, Yana? Hey, I'm pretty good. Yeah. Just having a great night tonight with some great people. Well, we, we are here. Thank you. We are here to d- discuss the uh, classic Pacino <laughs> film, Scarface. Which, uh, prior to this, in my discussions with uh, Yana, I found out that she fucking hates this movie. So, uh, after the second watch through, do you still feel that way? I, no, honestly, yeah. I, I don't hate it as much the second time around. Do I think that it deserves to be listed as, like, you know, when you look at organized crime, mob movies, like, does it deserve to be named right after Goodfellas and The Godfather? Absolutely not far too tacky and 80s in my opinion but i'm not the one with the film degree here so you know maybe from a more professional analysis of storyline character development and all those terms that you guys know um (laughs) i can be more convinced or i could just stay contrarian the entire time and just negate every valid point that you guys make so let's we should see well, Callie, let, let, let me ask you, what, what is your opinion of Scarface, first of all? Just like a, a personal thing? Mm-hmm. I mean, I liked, I, I liked it in some regards. Like, I like, well, aesthetically, I just like the neon and kind of the, the glamour of, like, 1980s Miami. It was fun to look at. But, like, I really liked how it looked, but I found it to be uncomfortable and, like, a lot of it, and that's, I mean, probably the point that Brian, I mean, does Brian De Palma ever make a movie that you're feeling comfortable while you're watching? <laughs> I uh, guess maybe Mission Impossible, that might be the closest. <laughs> no, he's like hanging off the cliffs and stuff. <laughs> oh, that's that's true. like, <laughs> I mean, well, I mean, for Mission Impossible, if you're sitting on the edge of your seat the whole time in suspense. That's true. That's a good so point. I can't consider that. that. Yeah, I mean, are you comfortable, per se? It's how you take that word. It's quite subjective. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I feel like it still kind of fits into that, like, New Hollywood. Like, the plot doesn't feel driven by the same, like, plot devices that it, like, you know, classic cinema is. And we kind of have an anti-hero. Tony Montana. Certainly an anti-hero, not in any way an actual hero although I guess that's where the film got popularized is that like for a lot of people he kind of was their hero and I think that that is like maybe where we can like find the distinction that like you get upset with people not seeing is that like it doesn't fit with the like mobster films because those are kind of about like mafia and the like organized crime families and stuff and this is starting to get into like gangster like type media which like is why yeah with with, like especially with like immigrants and people of color and stuff and it's like you start like moving away from like italian centric mob films and more like oh yeah other people can be involved in this too and it's like the grittiness of the drug trade versus like there's kind of this hygienic look at crime in those like other films, which I haven't actually seen Goodfellas, so maybe I'm wrong, but in The Godfather and other mafia films, it seems like there's always, like, you know, classical music playing, and there's these 
fucking like beautiful furniture around and they're always kind of in the shadows whereas we see Tony his friend gets chopped up with a chainsaw and it's it's definitely yeah. like he's more in the trenches and then we see him rise whereas I don't know I mean like you kind of get that with Michael but like Michael Corleone it's it's very different right. Right? it's different like, because yeah. my, like Michael Cor Corleone was very like he didn't want to be involved in that like but like Tony Montana is very like oh, fuck yeah, I want to be in this, like, <laughs> yeah, I want to get all the, like, because, well, to like, Tony Montana had that dishwashing job, and he was like, fuck this, you know, I want, I want the, mm -hmm. like, I want all the money, I want the mansions and stuff, I don't want to have to do this shit, you know? Right, I mean, I, I guess that's, like, part of my criticism for it, though, because with those traditional mob families, there's that assumed unit of loyalty and solidarity, because you're blood, and you knew someone from childhood, and... Tony did have that with his best friend in the movie, but all the other guys that kind of don't really have any characters in the film that support him, that like he makes that, you know, follow his orders, like where did they come from? Were they, I guess, I guess they were Cuban and they had that sort of bond, but I don't like that there's gaps in the storyline with that, uh, since he was this self-made guy and he didn't have that you know, inherited support to become such a powerful guy. And from my knowledge of drug rings, like you need to have a very tight knit crew to be successful in it, you know, because you get betrayed very easily. He, I guess like, that's where I don't like it. It seemed like he like rose like just from luck. Yeah. And also like my, I mean, like the biggest critique mm -hmm. that I had is they just brush over the entire, like him actually like rising to power with a fucking cheesy Rocky montage with like the stupidest yeah. song in the world like push it to the limit <laughs> it's like it like sounds like he's supposed to like like be soundtracking him like working out in the gym or something but he's like buying out like shell companies and shit and it's like what is going on right now because like before before right. before it hits that like montage it's very serious it's very like you know, like, realistic and stuff, and then it hits that, and you're like, what is going on right now, you know? <laughs> I guess it's supposed to illustrate, like, oh, he's, like, figured it out, and, like, things are going well, and he's able to, like, buy stuff. I don't know. It's such a materialistic movie, which is another thing that I read about, like, why it was so popular with certain audiences, was because it's, like, about this person that, like, rises from nothing and, like, is able to buy all these things. Oh, Tony's a ma material girl in a material world. <laughs> The very um, 80s. <laughs> uh, uh, um. <laughs> but yeah, like it's it it seems to say a lot about class and rising out of your station into other things through whatever means might be necessary. Which I think I sent you guys that like article where mm -hmm. somebody was saying that for like impoverished people it seemed like a practical way to like get at which I thought that, that was interesting. Just wording. Not that I, that I disagree. Practical's a choice. Choice of words. Well, I guess another thought I had is that, right, we're talking about Tony's rise to power. And, like, throughout the movie, as he's moving up the ranks, he's admired for being brutally honest and by other uh, mob film and TV shows. But, like, generally, when you're so disrespectful to, like, the main distributor of all of the cocaine supply in the United States. You're not really respected for that. Like you get killed for trying to act like that. And 
kind of looked, looked over and he's admired for it. You know, he's like, you know, that kind of like that brutally honest character and people found him trustworthy for that. Spoiler alert. <laughs> I don't know about that. Yeah, that is but, pretty unrealistic. Uh, I just thought that was not realistic. But that, but like my roommate was telling me uh, because like my roommate, he grew up in like the projects of Chicago during, in, in the 1980s and he saw this in the drive-in when it came out. And he said that like a lot of people during that era liked that movie because they looked up to Tony Montana because he took no shit from anyone. And like it was seen as like aspirational. Oh, this guy, like he, he says like, fuck you to people in power. He says like, you know, even at the end when he's like getting murdered, he's like, fuck you. I'm like, you know, I am a God basically. That was seen as kind of like aspirational. It was like, oh shit, you know, like we don't have to take shit from people. We can be like this guy who like rose and he got a fucking mansion out of it. And it's like, yeah, who, you know, like it, it's kind of conveniently ignoring the part where he gets murdered at the end of it. But at the same time, when you come from nothing and you see this guy that like rose from nothing and he has a fucking mansion and he has like, like the beautiful woman as his wife and he, you know, it seems like almost an aspirational type of thing. I think people are willing to look over the fact that he died by like what he was able to achieve or something and like. There's a strange, like, sentiment in that generation, I've noticed, where people are, like, like, the whole, like, live fast, die young kind of thing, and I know so many guys that are, like, I never thought I'd make it past 30, and, like, I feel some people are, like, well, whatever, like, that death might be the, uh, the outcome if you're able to at least change your life or something, which just is kind of a sad idea that so many people identified with that desperation. Well, really, in like Scarface, it kind of illustrates why the American dream is such such a sham in some ways, because it's, here's a guy who, you know, he's an immigrant from Cuba, he comes from nothing, he has nothing, and he does pull himself up by the bootstraps, you know, to get like all this wealth, and it doesn't mean anything, you know, it like, it, Ultimately, he doesn't mean anything. He's still murdered. He's still dead at the end of it. He lost, loses his he sister. He loses his friend. He has no one at the end of it. And it's like, mm -hmm. I think it just showcases that that whole idea that the American dream is something attainable is bullshit in a way. I don't know. Do we look at Scarface, though, as that movie to really highlight or show the failing of the logical fallacy of the American dream. Is that what it is? Because, I mean, regardless of how it ends. I think that's what, like, Brian uh, De Palma, or at least uh -huh. Al Pacino, like, because I know Al Pacino, well, that was, like, part of the problem, was that Al Pacino had a very specific vision with Scarface, is that he wanted to remake it with Cuban immigrants, and Brian De Palma, his original vision of Scarface was to remake it exactly like the 1930s mobster shit like type movie that the original was and i think that clash i don't know if it like made oh yeah well because like the written the original one that was kind of like that was the only way the original one got made because it was during the haze code and like if you know anything about the Hayes Code, that came into play um, during, like, the 30s when this, like, you know, and it's, it's a tale as old as time, like, a, a group of, um, like, of people are like, Hollywood is too immoral and we need to regulate this, this uh, content. And Scarface was basically like, 
like part of the Hays Code was like we can't make gangster movies because it glorifies crime. So Scarface came out and was oh no, this shows what happens when you do lead a life of a crime because you die and you know it's shit. In the original, he dies under the glowing um, neon sign that says the world is yours, or I, I believe. And if I'm wrong, I'm sure people on Twitter will correct me because I have not seen the original, but I believe like just from what I know about it, that's how the movie ends. And they take that bit from the original and the remake and you know like Tony hat like sees the blimp that says the world is yours and he has like in his mansion you know that says that when in reality it's like you know he's just living on borrowed time which is what my biggest problem with the the film is and you know I'm like I was talking about to Callie about this because it kind of I feel like feeds into like anti-immigrant sentiment in some ways is that like the American dream is shown as like, you know, a, like a farce with the world is yours, but if the world really wasn't his because he didn't go the right way, he did it the crime way, and he still fucking died, you know? The problem that I had with this film is more so that like in, you know, in the beginning they're talking about Castro sending not only his best and brightest, but like the, you know, his criminals in the jails and stuff. And it's basically like saying that like all all immigrants are just criminals and scourge, and this is like you know you should hate them because they're gonna become coke lords and that like they're gonna have kill a bunch of people, and and I feel like this movie kind of feeds into that. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I read this thing that was kind of interesting about the first wave of like Cuban immigrants. You know, came in the fifties, which we saw kind of in the Godfather Part Two. Um, when Castro came to power and then the second wave was kind of in the 80s and like in that span of time the sentiment towards immigrants like especially from I don't know Latin American countries I guess like changed so much because you know how like there's that certain like even if there's like a positive stereotype like how we like the idea that like oh like Asian people are really smart or like good at math or something like that's still like fucked up to like put everybody in this camp like we talked about this in tv comedy do you remember that uh -huh. and how there's this uh like even if a race is like idolized for certain things it's still like damaging so anyway anyways at the beginning of the wave of immigration the like sentiment towards latin people was like positive like they were like kind of considered like the good immigrant and by the 80s, this sentiment that we see in Scarface, like, Elvira kind of, like, treats him like he's, like, dirty or something, you know, and she kind of, like, turns her nose up at him. Like, that is what it, like, turned into in that span of time, especially because of, like, Maria Lito's... <laughs> I don't think I said that right. But the, the wave that came <laughs> in the 80s, which I wonder why specifically, like why that changed you know i think it's interesting because um i mean obviously u.s and cuba relations uh, are bad you know uh to this day thanks to um all u.s presidents so um you know there was a lot of propaganda uh going to the u.s to cuba and uh cubans were welcomed like to the u.s during those waves of immigration with open arms and they were like it was in the efforts to undermine castro it's like 
leave that communist dump and come here. We'll show you the American dream. And, you know, they were selling it as this, you know, you can work hard and you can have all your dreams come true. And, you know, all these uh, freedoms and human rights that you can't get under Castro. And I mean, I guess, you know, that's a whole other argument of what life was like for Cubans under Castro. Uh, I think there's peaks and pits to that timeline. But I do think this movie and the timing that it came out, the year that it came out, and the way that it does depict Cuban immigrants definitely, uh, I mean, I'm not saying there's a conspiracy that the movie production was like trying to give a bad look to uh, Cuban immigrants, but uh, I don't know if, if we're looking at it realistically, if it really helped, because you do have that reputation coming from South American countries. You know, when you think of Colombians uh, or Venezuelans, there's these preconceived notions from an American standpoint of what type of people are immigrating here and uh, whether there are drug dealers that come from that country. I mean, that's the tr- truth, but uh, it doesn't mean the movie kind of glorifying it and demonizing it at the same time uh, is really doing people from these, you know, regular people from this country justice. Um, but then to tagline onto my own point and then you guys can tell me i mean is it meant to like be taken literally or do you think most people your average american watching this you know kind of let it brush off and don't develop any other opinions on let's say cubans for example or they're just like oh it's just a movie or do you think this actually adds to very real biases and, and racism towards them what do you think well i think that this movie specifically is interesting for that question because like people idolize Tony so much but I think that the like white dude bros that we went to film school with that like love Tony Montana I don't think that they're considering him as like a Cuban American or that he's like they just think of him as the guy like oh yeah he says say hello to my little friend and he's a fucking badass right right yeah Yeah, they're like oh I just like love a shouty Pacino doing hella coke yeah. And they love, like, the violence and, like, the, like, collection of goods and women and, like, that <laughs> pyramid that Tony climbs. I don't think that they're thinking, like, oh, this is a movie about, like, like geopolitical. <laughs> <laughs> Even though oh, that's yeah. how it starts. <laughs> and maybe that was the target audience that really resonated with this. That's the but beginning of the film that they make a point of that, though. They, like, put it in, like, text mm. and they have, like, clips of Castro and it's like it's very obviously right. like well, the, this the, is this the is the introduction. The, yeah, the that starting scene, the opening scene of it. I mean, showing all the migrants coming in on the boats and the detention centers. I mean, yeah, that, I was really, that was realistic. I was really surprised that that. So like, whenever I watched it this summer was the first time I'd ever watched it, and I was surprised that this movie that. I had kind of always thought was a bro film or as well like started out with kind of a history lesson and then this like view into a piece of American history that I think people brush over which I never even knew about that we like detained Cuban migrants like as they came in like that's why I texted you guys like why do we love to do that because like yeah it's just like not even like not taught like oh yeah like every time like there's a oh yeah like mass immigration of people 
that we're not sure about, we like put them in a cage. Because they're very obviously in a fucking concentration camp at the beginning of it. Like, I mean, like Tony and his friend, they're like, right. there's like cages around it. It's like they're not allowed to leave. It's very clearly supposed to be like some kind of concentration camp. And we're supposed to just be like, oh, yeah, that's normal. But it's it's not. And it's not something that like you, you're taught that like, oh, after World War Two. There were never, there were never any concentration camps after World War Two, and it's like, that's not the case, you know. Like it's been happening for fucking decades. And like you can tell in the film that it was kind of like a lawless, like kind of a lawless place that wasn't like well regulated, and so. I couldn't, like, read, you know, whenever Tony's getting interrogated at the beginning about, like, his his criminal past. I couldn't tell if he had been involved in things or if he was, like, lying. But, like, if even if he hadn't been, I could see, like, staying in a place like that and having no, like, regulation and, like, everybody kind of having to fend for themselves, that making somebody so violent as to, like, lead a life that Tony does because... Even if it was just for, like, a couple months, like, that could fuck somebody up. Yeah, I think, like, I think you're supposed to imply that, like, he was lying about being a political prisoner and stuff. I think he was supposed to be, like, yeah, he was just, like, a run-of-the-mill guy that had been in jail for shitty things. But, like, that's the thing, though. It's, like, this kind of movie puts, like, thoughts into people's heads that, like, Oh, immigrants are all fucking lowlifes and criminals, and they're just coming in to, like... Hit on our women. Hit on our women and, and you know, rob our that. stores. And it's a bunch of bullshit. And that's, like, I guess, like, the main reason why I'm, like, kind of, like, you know, on this film. Because, you know, I don't... Thankfully, I don't think that's the message that a lot of people took away from this film. But I think it's a message that, like you very easily could take away if you're a fucking racist asshole. And there's a lot of people like that in the U.S., so... (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Reagan was president at the time that this happened, and, you know, IRL, uh, Reagan had the harshest, um, like, uh, I don't know the correct word, but when it came to the relationship between U.S. and Cuba... Reagan was absolutely the harshest out of any president um, in tightening restrictions and whether that's doing sanctions or... um, So the fact that the Cubans were allowed to come in such large numbers was absolutely uh, not because of his adoration and uh, empathy for Cubans. It was partly uh, a political strategy to um, kind of do also like a, a brain drain since... Cuba had socialized education and healthcare. A lot of the people that were coming over were extremely educated and smart. And now you're allowing them to have this free pass and entry into the U.S. But you know, we all know that this is not a fucking promised land here. And things, uh, you know, it's not, it's not especially kind. And once you get here, to immigrants, um, and you're not going to have healthcare while you're at it. So I think it. It's definitely, you see that in there, the way he talks about communism in it. Oh, are you a commie? Stuff like that. Like, it's intentional. I think thinking about it, like, in terms of Reagan being in office, I hadn't, I mean, like, I thought about it being in the 80s and stuff, but it being a film where it's so much about, like, 
migrants and like the drug trade and like how much Reagan demonized drugs like every drug that like is illegal like demonizes like a different group of people like you have you read that quote about how they were like well like the hippies loved marijuana so we Mm -hmm. made that illegal and assigning like cocaine to like a certain group of people in media and having constant films about the drug trade from what you said Colombia and like those countries that must be damaging whether we think about it or not as oh like he like got a lot of money out of it or whatever it's still kind of planting yeah. that yeah I mean because when it shows the head drug distributor in Bolivia and one of the, towards the end of the movie who did he have in that meeting before everything went to shit for Tony I mean it was like the, the head of the interior and like a top of the navy dude and you know it shows the like oh, the government's also in it which again uh, may or may not be true i just think that certain depictions are intentional not highlighted enough that the american dude aka the cop mm-hmm. is also just as shitty as the rest of the people you know and he should have I think it should have been a more of a character, in my opinion, just to really, because that's true, you know, how many fucking dirty cops are in on these drug rings and, you know, do it for and pocket their their own fair share, or fair share, did I use that term? Oh my god. You know, you know what I'm saying? I'm yeah. sure that's how it feels to them. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah. taking my fair share, which... We forgot to talk about drug stories a little bit, but I was telling Jane that the first time I tried coke, I did it like a police officer. Like, I, which is to say that I, I took some and I rubbed it on my gums. Because <laughs> cops are always like, yeah, it's coke. Like, they like... And then I realized that that was stupid because I just gave myself numb gums and couldn't Well, okay, out. in your defense, I allegedly have done that. <laughs> allegedly, every time I have also allegedly purchased a certain substance, um, and that's also just useful in testing how potent it is or how quickly it goes numb. So there's a practical reason okay. to do that, and it's uh, still a fun sensation. I've heard from other people, so you know that's why I did it. Uh, when I allegedly... you knew what you were doing. You knew what you were doing. Okay. <laughs> Well, I have allegedly never done coke, so I will defer to both of you that these experiences are valid. <laughs> that the, we are talking about the police being just as involved. Often. We could do coke stories, guys. I just don't know um, if we want to. I have many. I've done Look, a lot. Allegedly. I don't really have any. We're here for the ratings, so if you're... I'm just I have the MDMA story. <laughs> You know what? Which, honestly, I probably should have told during the cruising episode. We should, let's, you know, it's Scarface, it's the episode about drugs, so just fucking let me loose with all your drug stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what you shouldn't do? Just, like, okay, if we're on topic, I guess. Poppers and coke in, like, the same night. Like, You've done poppers. You will, yeah, poppers, yeah, that's, I mean, gay culture, know. baby never been able to get my hands on them. What did it feel like? What's it like? Oh, well, poppers are just like a little tiny, stupid little head rush that makes you talk a lot. The, for me, uh, some people use them for more practical reasons because they loosen your asshole, literally, so it makes right. sex easier. Right, um, we're about that. We, le- we mm-hmm. learned that for the, yeah, well, in like our research for cruising. That's not why I do them. They're just like, le- well, yeah, they're legal. Like, you could get them in, like, the delis. And, uh, like, we, uh, not 
Weed stores. Uh, <laughs> like a smoke, a, a smoke shop. Sorry, smoke shop. That's where, that's the, yeah. the I'm in New York. Store. We don't have weed stores. Uh, <laughs> we do have we do have poppers. <laughs> you can just buy them. Yeah, it's it's just like a it's, it's essential oil. <laughs> it's essential oil. Oh my god. <laughs> hey, look. I'm the only. I don't person. really know what's in it, but like, it's not easy. Does anybody? I mean, like, look. I'm the I'm the trans person here in this conversation. I would be the most likely to like use this to get my asshole loosened, and even I don't know what the fuck is in poppers. I just hear what's poppers. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a muscle relaxant, and that's why yeah. it relaxes that special muscle. Sure. I mean, it's just like a really low. It gives you a head brush. Um, but that's why I've never and, understood that it. it's like something that you're like. Yeah, you just inhale it. Um, it's but, quick. It's like one, two, three. You feel it, it instantly, and then it goes away, and like super fast. Is it like a vapor, uh, or just something going? No, it's house? a it's an oil in the bottle. It's like, it looks like oil. It's oil because I spilt it on myself, so it's definitely <laughs> oil. Right. Um, that's why I call it essential oil. That's why, it, like. I was asking one of my friends who's, like, uh, an older, like, gay man about it, and he was, I was, like, asking about, like, how long it takes to finish some, and he was, like, that's the thing, you never finish it because someone drops it. Like, someone always drops it. <laughs> that's so funny. I mean, I've, I had a bottle that I left in a, a jacket pocket that I found actually during quarantine, and I was so bored in my room. I was, like, oh, I just fucking finish this. But it was old and opened, and I swear, like, they were fermented, and I got so nauseous, oh, and I didn't God. feel good. Yeah, so, that sounds intense. Intense in the bad way, as opposed mm -hmm. to intense in the good way. There was a no, night... No, don't do fermented pop poppers. <laughs> there was a night where I, like, tried to, to do a little bit of coke, and I was trying, like, a different, like, type of antidepressant. And I just, like, felt real crazy for, like, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Like, I was, like, just, I don't know. Like, I usually just talk a lot or whatever. But I was, like, I'm going to do a couple laps around your house. Okay, guys? Like, and then I. You had a lot of energy you have to get out. And then I burst into tears and had to go home. Oh. <laughs> so it just. Not fun. The antidepressants weren't working. Yeah, they don't, they kind of ruin all the upper drugs, so. I think I'm definitely more of a, a downers girl. Oh, I just want to, like, get high and fucking pass out and be a dumbass. That's like. Why, you must be fucking fun at parties. Well, no. <laughs> Whenever I did, um, all that MDMA, some of my friends were over and they were trying to, like, calm me down and just, like, put on a movie and... For some reason, they chose Logan, the movie about Wolverine. Where I've never seen it. It doesn't sound like a good movie, though. It's called Wolverine. Well, in the first, like, five minutes, uh, somebody gets shot in the face. That's and a somebody... depressing fucking movie. That is not a Popper's movie. You put on fucking, like, you know, some stupid Adam Sandler com comedy or something. You put on well, you're both... No, you're both incorrect. You're putting on the worst movies. You put on... A movie like uh, Enter the Void. Have you seen that? No, you don't put that fucking movie on. Yes, you that, do. That movie you is get transported into hyperspace. It's depressing Absolutely. as fuck, that movie. No. It's not depressing to me. 
I... Um, are you kidding me? I've watched Requiem for a Dream on many substances. I, it's, I, I don't know. I like that. Jesus Christ. I like only made it five minutes in because, yeah, somebody gets shot in the face and somebody else gets their arm cut off. And I was, like, screaming for them to turn the movie off. And then uh, they turned on King of the Hill, which felt... <laughs> Felt like a lot better because it was like you know colors and stuff. <laughs> but every time the, the colors and the theme song came on, I like lost my shit again because the worst possible thing that somebody could have done to my brain while I was on like so much MDMA was to play like bluegrass. Like, it, it felt like an <laughs> affront to me. I was like, this is not. Why didn't you just like put on music and dance it out? I that should. Was, that was in your vibe. I but still have a little bit. Well, I was just like hanging out with people. And well, when I initially took it, because I took too much, I like flipped out and I got like way too hot and I had to like sit in front of the air conditioner and then I like just uh, tried to astral project for a little while. <laughs> and, oh my God. And like, I almost fell asleep, which got scary because I was like, oh no, I don't want to <laughs> like... Oh, man. Pass on. Yeah, and then I just got I really just into doing yoga while I watched King of the Hill. Okay, I mean, like, it sounded like it, you're obviously fine now, so... Yes, I lived. I kept thinking about this comedian that I like, uh, Chris Gethard, who, he used to have a show on Manhattan Public Access, but he has this story about how he did $300 worth of MDMA in one weekend at, like, a music festival. And he said that, like, whenever he, like, gave the drug dealer that amount, the guy just gave him a bag of powder. Like, it wasn't even, like, pills anymore. It was just, like, mm. fully, like, he was, he just, like, fun dipped it, like, the whole, yeah. Uh, yeah. the whole time. And then he, like, got really high. And I'm about Chris Gethard's size, so I was like, if he can do it, then I can do it. <laughs> no. Yeah, I mean, the music best festival is a great place to do a shit ton, just because, technically, but you also, like, are in public, and you probably want to keep it together, and there's all this loud music and lights and stimulation that should be working in your favor, so that you don't, like, um, like, if you're in just a house with friends, like, you don't have as many things distracting you. Yeah. Um, um, well, I've never done MDMA, but, like... Callie one time gave me a fucking piece of cake that was uh, an edible. It's a cake. Of, uh, yeah, a cake. Um, an edible. Okay, I heard K. I'm like, oh, uh, she gave you a piece. No, of no, no. Be. She gave me a. She gave me a piece of cake, like the confectionery dessert. Well, what's um, cake anymore? I mean, that's ruined. <laughs> so you gotta be. It, it had a uh, lot of weed in it, basically, and she didn't know how much it was in it, but um, I ate it all. And I fucking hallucinated, and I didn't know that I wasn't wearing any clothes anymore. And I walked out to my roommate. You you did this to your friend? Not to Callie. Oh. I did not do this to no. Callie. I did Callie this to my. Did this to you? No, Callie gave you. She gave cake. me the fucking cake. She thought I would just like be like a normal person and just like cut it up and just take a small piece. But I just no, ate the whole. I, ate I the don't whole, blame you. I ate the whole fucking thing. And, but did um, you know it was inedible? Yeah, I knew. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I knew. Of course uh, I knew. Mm, of course I knew. Like, oh, like, hey, how strong is this? How so much did you eat? I ate it. I ate the whole thing, and my roommate. So here's the, uh, Jane like doesn't really smoke all that much. So I only smoke right. with Callie usually ninety percent of the time, 
And like, mm -hmm. I'm so, I can't use lighters because I'm afraid of burning myself. So she has to light them for me <laughs> and she'll have the little, um, she'll have the little bong and she'll put it in front of me and light it. And then I'll, and that's how I get it. Um, but she gave, but she oh. made, she baked a cake and it was really yummy, but. And the weed was just in the frosting. And so it really <laughs> wasn't, I didn't think it was that strong. <laughs> And so I was Aww. like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, like, you know, see how it goes. And then Jane ate it all. Yeah, I ate it all. And, um, my roommate, he knocked on the door because he heard me like, I guess, freaking out or something in my room. <laughs> I'm so and sorry. I, and I walked out and I was like, I guess I had my, I don't remember this very well. This is super embarrassing. So I, you know, but like, it's funny, like, so I don't give a shit. Um, I walked out and I guess I had my underwear around my legs or something and I was like, please give me a hug because I was like, I had no idea what was going on. I was in astral zones and my roommate was like, one, it's a pandemic, so no, I'm not going to do that. And two, you realize you're naked right now. And I was like, oh, is that, what, is, is that what's happening right now? And I like pulled my like underwear up but it was just like oh my god it was very intense and i was just like i can't do that anymore <laughs> i just feel bad i didn't mean to laugh it doesn't sound like a good experience it wasn't but it was all it's also super funny because like at one point i mean it's funny because it's weed you know it's not like it's, like, uh, yeah, it's just fucking dose, marijuana like it's just marijuana yeah. and my i told my roommate to put on the trailer for um look who's talking the fucking movie which we're like we're like it's a it's a movie where like bruce like the Will 90s movie yeah bruce like willis plays a talking baby, baby? In it. yeah i told him to put that on because i was like oh this will ground me and it didn't it just made me fucking more that movie fucked up. knows <laughs> oh, man. That's, i think people honestly enjoy uh like drug stories gone wrong the I got with all these people and like we went to all these clubs like no one wants to hear that like cool good for you people love the shit that you get fucked up and something embarrassing happens oh of course um, and like i have no shame and, i have yeah. no shame i'm willing to admit i have been completely nude bugged <laughs> out on fucking edibles before <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> you know it's this is this is um not damage control the, the phrase prevention <laughs> there's a uh, the, what's it called there's a phrase for like drug awareness that's like um not saying don't do drugs like do drugs safely harm reduction uh. yes this is harm reduction uh to share these stories i can i can give a quick one that i think interesting and it ties in our theme of the movie actually <laughs> I'll, I'll i'll shorten it down though uh, long story short i was uh tripping on acid i had done it many times that was nothing new um, I'm in the club with my friend, a club I go to pretty often, and like everything was fine. But the thing is, with this club, it's in uh, downtown Brooklyn in Bushwick area. If anyone's familiar, it's built on n radioactive land. There was a nuclear plant there, <laughs> and um, the club owners ignored it and built anyways. And like, there's no residential housing there, and like, there shouldn't be a club there, and people shouldn't be eating there or like hanging out there. And this is an extremely popular area. With bars and clubs so i know this information so i'm tripping and i'm like really feeling myself i guess and i'm like hold up the article on my phone exposing it and i'm like showing it to everyone i'm like look you're getting a you know you're getting nuclear poisoning right now and then um this whole time though i'm like doing a tour de information i'm smoking a joint and i i, I abandoned my friend and i i smoked the whole thing and <laughs> i guess i 
I didn't realize it and it was very, very fat joint, one would say. And so the combination with that, you know, we continue into the club, I'm on the dance floor and then all of a sudden everything stopped working functionally with my body. I could not move. I like could stop dancing. Like I just, I felt like a cinder block and then I couldn't uh, feel my arms. So I had to like put my hands up in front of my eyes in order to remember I have hands again. And the second I take them away, it was like object permanence. I'm like, oh my God, I don't have arms. I put them back down. I'm like, oh no, I have hands. I put them back down. I'm like, oh shit, where the fuck are my arms? And uh, this spiraled into a panic attack. <laughs> so in my panic-induced acid weed state, I told my friend I'll be right back. She, I was, I, of course, I'm not communicating. Harm reduction here, you always tell your friends when you're freaking out so they can help you. Um, but I don't, so I leave and I just go sit. And a dude finds me and is definitely being predatory and like hanging out with me. But, so what I'm having, my friend finds me with this like dude on top of me and she's like, what the fuck? And I'm like, I'm not okay. Let me, let me just get to the point here. I did a bump of Coke. Everything went away. Everything went away. It canceled everything. It negated the hallucinogen. Is this an advertisement for Coke? (laughs) Yeah. So back to Tony Montana and his work that he did in the United States of uh, spreading uh, kilos of this uh, magic substance that ends panic attacks. Yeah, Yeah, Tony Montana, he's a a true American hero. He was selling this magic elixir known as cocaine that just immediately leaves panic attacks and anxiety. People (laughs) used to really love cocaine, like medicinally. Like Coca-Cola is just wine and coke. It was at one point just wine and cocaine, and people were like, hot damn, I love this. It was medicinal at one point, and I... I mean, I think I think the doctors knew it wasn't based on any scientific evidence. I think they all personally were just so coked up and they like lobbied for it because they're like, they're like I want fun. this. Well, like Freud, yeah. like like Freud would just fucking coke up all his patients all the time. All right, that's... is that your is that that's who we're citing here? Freud? Yeah, Freud. He's okay. like he's the patron saint of this podcast. No, just kidding. <laughs> Talk about like penises so much. Oh yeah, we're gonna sidebar about that one if you think that's true. No, I thought Freud is a quack mostly, but (laughs) I mean, you know, he did do some important. uh, He did create. He incited dialogue and discourse, which in any field of any science, it's good. It's good. It's good. (laughs) Yeah, Tony. How do you how do you feel about the amount? of coke that he was doing uh, towards the end. Any thoughts? Oh, that, that. I mean, it's, you know, actually, it's really funny. It's obviously flour like, <laughs> or some movie prop. It's, it's just, like, so funny. It takes away from the scene because I'm like, that's flour. And it's all over your face, and it looks like you're baking. You're not fucking tough, so. <laughs> yeah, that's that's also probably why he died and, like, was so... Yeah, because he, he, he was ingesting yeah. flour. So... <laughs> Pacino in real life, like they, I mean, whatever they had him snorting, he like had long term repercussions of snorting shit for Scarface. Like he said that his nose has never oh. been the same since doing that. Just movie. like me doing Coke and Poppers on that night, as I was saying before. I it'd get be, it. It'd be so funny if Pacino just actually loves Coke and he's like, it's all because of Scarface. Scarface ruined my nose, but he just every night does Coke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, he does yeah. say that, doesn't he say that he can't remember the 70s at all? Which usually well, is like... Well, I know that he took, like, a lot of painkillers with Diane Keaton. <laughs> and, 
And so, like, maybe he was, like, more of, like, a pills guy. But, mm. like, we know for sure that he had substance abuse issues. <laughs> well, he broke the, he broke, like, number one, like, street rule. Well, number two, don't get high on your own spot. Uh-huh. The beginning, the uh, initial guy that Elviro is with, he he makes a comment about not getting high on your own supply, and then he, there's kind of this, or maybe Elvira says it, and then there's kind of a meaningful glance between them, and then mm-hmm. throughout the film, she does hella fucking coke. Mm-hmm. Like, I have never seen so much fancy devices to do coke. Like, most people I've seen do it off of, like, a table or a key but like she has like several different like cute little spoons the little she... spoons they're so elegant right it's like a she's such a fancy cigarette lady. extenders and they're just her little baby spoons like very classy uh cokehead here yeah what the hell i've never met a classy cokehead i think her character is so interesting just in that she's kind of floating between these like two powerful men but I wanted to see what you guys thought about her just as a character and then of how she like transitions between her relationship both men like in some ways like took it well and it was also her choice in like some ways too but like I feel like they took advantage of the fact that she likes coke so much yeah I feel like that was because she very obviously does not give a fuck about Tony like she hates him does not like him she fucking hates him. There's never a scene in the movie where I feel like her and Tony actually like... Like, I feel I think Tony likes her because she's hot, but I don't think mm-hmm. that she likes Tony at all, and she even fucking tells him that, like, even if they were the last fucking people on Earth, she would not fuck him. You know, like... She also, like, is, like, yeah. pretty racist to him. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's super racist, yeah. and, like, it's just, like... They're clearly two people who have nothing in common outside of that, like, Tony is incredibly wealthy and has, like, a ton of coke connects or whatever. And it does it does feel like a relationship out of the fact that, like, she knows that she can always get coke from her husband. Like, that, that feels like the entirety of the relationship. And even she, I feel like, realizes that at some point, and when she leaves him, she's just like, fuck this, I'm not gonna be with you anymore. And she's the only one that gets out of the movie. I was going to say, I think it's part of Tony's narcissism and pretty on brand for his character that he somehow convinces her to marry him. And this is another criticism of the movie because, like, they didn't really have any positive uh, connections, like, all the times they they encountered each other. And then that time at the pool, he's like, you know, let's get married. I want you to have my babies. And she's on board. She's like, well, what about Frank? And it's like, well, when did you start liking him? And I think for for Tony, I think he liked her attitude, but I think he liked something that wasn't he couldn't get. You know, I think that's all that was for him. And taking power from other people because that's how he upped his ranks. He just tried to kill off the person that was you know a step above him. So I, I mean, I don't know. Was it true love? <laughs> nah, I was not. No, they're <laughs> toxic as well. Well, we wouldn't know because they didn't give her much of a character anyways for us to, like, see her own thoughts, really. It was just, like, sassy remarks and, like, somewhat... She's from Baltimore. We know that. <laughs> I've known a couple people that just, like, date whoever they're with for, like, because they 
have like weed all the time or like whatever and that's not like explicit like it's not something like we've talked about but like you can tell like there's nothing in common they're like always yelling at each other but like that's the thing that they do together is like they smoke or like they do whatever so I think it's like interesting to see it in film like that too where like Elvira like we don't really know what else she does because she doesn't do it with Tony like all she does with Tony is like get high and like well usually it seems like whenever he comes into a room she's like time to leave like she doesn't even like being around him because he's annoying as fuck I mean like, <laughs> like I stand him as the film goes on I mean on, he's the worst so yeah I don't blame her <laughs> yeah as the film goes on he can own like he's just like so obsessed with money and I think that that's like what she really gets upset with him about is that it's like he can't even talk about anything else other than like the business and Mm -hmm. like the goings on and the money and like he's always like up in arms about something yeah it's not a healthy relationship by any means if anything it feels like it's just a relationship out of convenience and he loves his sister (laughs) Much more than his wife. That's the point we've been trying to get to. We've been building up to that. His one true love. The incest plot. His one true love. The incest plot of Scarface is fucked up, let me tell you. (laughs) I think it's, like, interesting to have introduced his sister, like, kind of... I mean, it's it's not, like, super late into the movie. Well, it's hard to, to tell with a movie so long what is considered late in the movie. But I feel like he doesn't talk about his family very much, and then all of a sudden we have him visiting his mom and sister. And I know you wanted to get into his mommy issues. Do you want to go through <laughs> I'm, I'm that? I'm for the mommy issues here. <laughs> Do you want to go through that? No reason at all. I'm sure it, like, you know, feeds into the sister issues. Yeah, no, it's absolutely why I think so, because he doesn't respect his mother. His mother disowned him. She's, she said she doesn't have a son to his face. I mean, I, the mother's completely justified, I think. Because the poor mom had the husband, the, the dad left, she raised the daughter, and then Tony comes strolling in out of nowhere with some money and a gift. So I don't, I don't blame the mom. But obviously that fucked up Tony. And we don't know, because the story doesn't explain it, how long have they been separated? I mean, we know that Tony's father was absent, but we don't know what their... <laughs> Childhood was, do we? Didn't she say it was like four, like four or five years that he had been in prison? Yeah, I think we also figured out the math because uh, she's nineteen and he says he hasn't seen her since she was like fourteen, and that she was like a little kid whenever he saw her. So I think it's been about five years, but like I don't know if it's supposed to be like he missed her puberty and like now he's like, oh, you're a woman. And he's still, he's still treating her like she's a child. Oh, now you have big beautiful boobs, so like. It reminded me of that uh, South Park episode whenever Baby gets boobs for the first time and then all the guys are like, I don't know, there's just something so interesting about Baby. Like, they can't, like, well, like I... they don't know why she's, like, interesting to them now and they're all, like, Google-eyed <laughs> at her. <laughs> yeah, you know what, yes, you made a great, that's actually a great point. Now he's taken an interest in his sister's life, right? Now all of a sudden that she's hot. He cares about her well-being, even though he's been absent. I just think that's interesting. Well, I mean, yeah, Tony doesn't respect women. I think it's really disgusting the way that he treats his sister. I mean, what, she's having fun and dancing at the club? Not on my watch. 
uh, I'm the only man for you, you know, uh, like he, he either severely hurt or murdered any man she was with in the movie, including someone you thought he trusted. I think that, and I think that just really shows, yeah, I think it's kind of mutual. Like she, she, the yearning in their eyes, I might be going a little too far here guys and I'm sorry, but it's just, it's uncomfortable, especially at the end when she's dead and like he's, I mean, he's obviously not in a good headspace that ending, but I mean, that's a lot to take in when she comes in with her naked body, well, robe is off and telling her, do you want me now? Do you want to fuck me? Like, you know, and then he's draped on top of her, kissing her while she's dead. Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. It felt like a Greek tragedy. The like odd sexual. No, like a, Shakespe- a Shakespearean yeah. tragedy, and I had brought this up in the fucking group chat before, and Yana was like, "You're a fucking dumbass for thinking this." But like, I did not say that. <laughs> but like, no, this is very Shakespearean, and like, I com- I uh, I connect it to like the like to plays like Macbeth and Hamlet especially Hamlet. But really the the film that I was thinking of the mo- that that's most like Scarface, Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, which was a Japanese 1950s retelling of I believe King Lu- I think it was King Lear, but that's the film that like was most reminding me be- of, of Scarface and I'm probably going to get roasted for suggesting that Shakespeare had any influence on this film. But it is a Shakespearean tragedy, though, because, you know, he is this guy who rose from nothing, and he loses it all. And what is more tragic than that? And that's what Shakespeare well, thrives in. There's blood, called, and it's death. He called the war. He said this is Shakespeare, war. all of Shakespeare's plays deal with death. Lots of death. How many fucking people die in Hamlet? So it's like Scarface is the modern Shakespeare play. <laughs> if you really think about it. <laughs> Not convinced. So disappointed. Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, like, I, I, there are there are weird sexual themes. So also, yeah, like you even look at um. This isn't necessarily Shakespearean, but like. We think about Oedipus, the uh, Greek play of Oedipus and the incest themes that br- that is brought in Oedipus. Isn't Scarface similar to that? And That's it, you want to kill your dad and fuck your mom, though, right? But he wants to fuck his sister. So it's very... He hates his mom. I think, like, what you were saying about him not respecting women and then only respecting or being interested in his sister after she had like gone through puberty and was like like seen as like a sexual being is interesting just in that like Tony obviously only cares or gives time and respect to people that he wants to fuck. Maybe it's not necessarily just like a sexual thing or like a gendered thing but like how like attraction and like being a like having like importance to people like is sometimes like aligned and I think that maybe that's like how we can see that Tony is just completely like a vapid material person like he only cares about like 
people being attractive around him, whether or not they're necessarily for fucking. But the thing is, like, with Tony, it's yeah. like, I think he, like, even sees that 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 is very hollow. Because you remember that scene where he's in the hot tub and he's like, is this all that is? Is this all, is this all there is? You know, just fucking money and and things and you know and he's like kind of having an existential crisis in the hot tub and it's like <laughs> friend and his and elvira are like you're so boring tony but like tony's like is this all there is is this all there is? Yeah. <laughs> like he, he's like oh yeah he's like fuck like he's kind of like fucked up because you know he realizes that he's at the top now and that it's just like it doesn't mean anything yeah. It's, it's it's not as uh, rewarding. It doesn't fill that void. It doesn't make you happy. I think he realized that, but it doesn't stop him on his quest for power. It doesn't do anything to humble him. His ego, if anything, gets the best of him as we continue from that point in the hot tub when he does have that realization, like, shit, I got it all now. I got the wife, you know, I got the house and the hot tub and like it's still not enough maybe that's there's another... the true critique of capitalism there baby <laughs> doesn't he bring up capitalism at some point he does say capitalism yeah, the... that's where he says he doesn't like capitalism it's like okay well you hate communism because it doesn't let you become scarface you have to follow rules. <laughs> no you have to follow rules right if you're in, in, in communism makes you follow rules and you're a sheep for following rules i'm not really sure i guess he was thinking of corporate capitalism but i mean the art of selling drugs is to maximize profits. So baby, you're a capitalist just like the rest. <laughs> I thought the the rant was interesting in the in the restaurant whenever him and El- Elvira like break up, and mm-hmm. she leaves him just talking about how like for some reason Tony <laughs> wants to have children, which I think is hilarious. Like, the, those are the things he, like, cares, he's, like, I well, care yeah, about, and, like... And that even comes out, like, in the scene where he's, like, adamantly refuses to assassinate the guy that Sosa right. wants yes. him to because his children, his wife and kids are in there, and he's, like, I'm not gonna fucking kill kids. The only humanity we really see in Tony, like... Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the, the only scene in the fucking movie where it's, like, oh, maybe he has some kind of conscience, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think, like, maybe that's what we're supposed to think about like him and his sister is that he values like her innocence but also that's still like kind of inherently misogynistic because he thinks that her innocence is just tied to whether or not she's fucked before and whatever that's a whole other conversation but and well and i've read all this stuff about how he still views her as like his little sister and he doesn't want her to be like morally corrupted but you're a catcher in the rye in that sense. <laughs> I don't know if you have you read that book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very like this whole world is a phony. This whole world is phony. But you. <laughs> no, sorry, no. Oh right, like the, so, the pure one. <laughs> I mean, you're allowed to also to make fun of his accent because he's, he's a white not guy. Cuban. He's a he's white Italian. guy playing Cuban. Yeah, he's white. So. <laughs> okay you're not actually making fun of cubans you're making fun of a fake accent there's a lot of people on twitter that are like pissed off finding out that he's not cuban like okay that's what you're mad about out of everything in that movie like that's what gotcha yeah that's what's so inflammatory yeah okay <laughs> they're they just like think i guess that pacino did a good job which do you not think that he did a good job is that why you're like 
I used to make fun of it. I don't know how many, like, off-the-boat Cubans I've really met. I, I have Cuban friends, but they're, like, second generation, so they don't speak like that. I don't know how accurate that is to people so coming from Cuba speaking English so soon. I guess uh, he did do a lot of, like, I, I didn't look into it, but there are, are like, a different, like, little mini-docs, like, highlighting his preparation for this role. Um, I don't know if you guys are more familiar with it to, like, speak on it. So I would like to trust that, like, um, since the director was, like, trying his best, I mean, about Pacino's a very respected actor, and why wouldn't he, he, he take the Cuban accent seriously? He worked with, like, a vocal coach, and, right. like, I was just reading that he had the, uh, the DP only speak to him in Spanish, <laughs> which I was like, I, I don't think that... They know Pacino he know Pacino never speaks Spanish once in here. Yeah, he had one line of dialogue that was in Spanish the entire film. Yeah. <laughs> Which I mean like I understand why they wouldn't want like, you know, to have to train all of their actors if they weren't all like native Spanish speakers. But you'd think that they would at least like in The Godfather we have like that kind of like interwoven like Italian which you see in a lot of like second generation kids where they like speak like but like they'll cut between english and their native language throughout their speaking or like i even know deaf people that talk and sign at the same time so like mm-hmm. you'd think that they'd have at least just a few more accents, i mean not even a cursing cursing in spanish i mean mm-hmm. yeah interesting there's so much cursing in this movie but none of it's in spanish <laughs> There's a really great cut on YouTube of all of the different TV edits of what... Oh my god, it's so bad. It's like, when whenever the, when they tried to air this, like, originally on TV, instead of, like, bleeping it all out, you know, in, like, The Big Lebowski and other films, they would just have people dub over uh, with synonyms or, like, things that sound similar to the curses. Like, with Scarface, mm-hmm. it's so ridiculous. It makes no fucking sense. Like, there's a there's like a, the most famous example that I can think of is when he's like, this whole world's a pussy that I just, that's ready to get fucked. And like, when they, when they dub that over for TV, it's like, this whole world's a chicken just waiting to get plucked. <laughs> it's like... No, they didn't. Yeah, no, no they, they totally didn't. did. <laughs> kids, kids, bop, kids bop is better at coming up with better lines. Like, uh, like, what? Oh, what about the other one you guys had mentioned when, um... What's his name? Manny was like, uh, did that disgusting tongue trick to that girl, and he's like walking away from her. He's like, get lesbian. That's why you're a preacher. Yeah. What did they do it for TV? Didn't lemon brain. Lesbian? Lemon brain. Lemon brain. Apparently, lesbians a, a curse word, folks. So. I, I another one Let's that start I start a, a lesbian bar called Lemon Brain. Lemon brain. Yeah. No. Another one that I liked was at the very beginning when he's like being interrogated by the uh, customs officer. Um, he's like, where did you get that scar eating pussy? And the TV version, it's like, where did you get that scar eating pineapple? Yeah. I, <laughs> oh. I watched a like TV version of a movie once, and the character is supposed to go, holy shit. And they changed it to, holy shirt. I, it just sounds so lame. It's like, no one talks like that. Nobody talks like that. They should just cut the line entirely, honestly. They just should just not show it. the movie. I mean, like, what is, like, uh... What, just what, the bleep blood, it. The, what's... All the shooting and the blood and the chainsaw, like, that's TV appropriate, but, like... But, like, saying pussy, pussy is Pussy or not... lesbian? I think it's just, like, misogyny here, folks. I mean, think about the words they chose to change. That's true. Can't show a vagina on the screen, but you can show a But you can a show a penis! And a penis. A fucking penis. 
Yeah. You can't show, uh, I mean, nipples. Like, that's a whole other problem, too. Woman's See, nipples? It, no. There are nipples in this movie. There are. We should put that, like, There's on the thing. Oh, if, if yeah, need... there are. Yeah. Well, they probably could cut that out for TV. I if would... you need nipples in Is your it? movies. I've never seen it on TV. I've only um, watched on, like, streaming services. The, 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 the one other thing that I wanted to mention before we wrap things up is I really like the score in this. And I even... no. <laughs> no, I love the fucking overly synth, like, Giorgio Moroder. Giorgio Moroder, for those who don't know, one of the godfathers of disco. He, um, he took disco sound and combined it with, like, more of an electronic, like, synth sound. And he worked with Donna Summer a lot in the late 70s and created a bunch of classic hits. But he also did a lot of films, and um, he did the score for Scarface, and I love the heavy synth fucking, like, like lines that happen whenever there's, like, a real dramatic moment. It's, like, this really heavy oh, synth. I love that. And I love it, and you don't get scores like that anymore. Instead, it's, like, like you know, in films like today, it's very Hans Zimmerly like, Inception, boom, boom. Well, I think I think it actually depends because when you look at films like Hereditary or especially like horror films, I think they have that's really true. It follows unique scores still going on. But yes, when it comes to mainstream, your big uh, you know Hollywood produced blockbuster, Lizzo, whatever, whatever. <laughs> but I love I love the Georgie Moroder score. I even love the cheesy pop hits. It, it just it really adds. It's so eighties, and it's like not the best of the eighties for me. I mean. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yana had this, and I really wanted to include this in the episode. Like, when we were watching Yana, like, there was during the club scene, she was like, how the fuck did people dance to songs like this in clubs? And I was like, are you kidding me? These are the songs that I would oh. love to dance to. And Yana's like, how the fuck do you dance to these songs? And I'm like, <laughs> I just actually watched a, uh, I watched Frankie and Johnny, the other movie that he did with Michelle Pfeiffer, which is strange I won't talk about it too much, but in that film, it's another movie where Al Pacino really, really likes Michelle Pfeiffer, and Michelle Pfeiffer, like, doesn't want to give Al Pacino the time of day, and, hmm. uh, Sounds familiar. <laughs> he dances in this film as well, but it's, like, at a, like, a Greek party, so he's trying to dance in, like, a Greek style, and it's... <laughs> Gianna's Greek, so... I am Greek. Oh, are you? Yeah. <laughs> Yana, I'll have to like send it to you because it's super painful. Yeah, not familiar with that. That sounds yeah, you, like traditional, like traditional Greek dancing, like holding hands. Yeah, a like in a circle. Like he he looked right. actually good. Like he was like keeping up with them. But then he went into the middle of the circle to try and like freestyle on them uh, and it just is bad but like and i was watching this like he's trying to win michelle pfeiffer this whole movie and i was like that is not the way my <laughs> friend like it's just well yeah i mean i haven't seen it so i don't know the clip but i'm assuming of what you're describing like uh when you're dancing in a circle and someone goes in the middle to start dancing it's called the drunk man's dance so you literally just move really slow and like fumbly and um have you don't really need to have like you're not you don't have to dance good when you do that and you have your little moment in the middle i don't know how close to the real deal it is um so if he fucked that up i don't know he spazzed out in the middle it didn't look like (laughs) uh i mean a different type of drunk man a coke man a coke man yeah oh was he also uh did they also do coke in this movie too 
He plays a back of house line cook, so even if it's not on screen, I wouldn't. <laughs> wouldn't That's worry. an inside joke for anyone who's ever worked in a fucking restaurant. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure he does cook. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's, like, again, why it's, like, an interesting, like, the movie does feel like an inside joke for, like, restaurant culture in that, like, Michelle Pfeiffer is, like, the beautiful waitress and he's, like, the line cook that's, like, hey, princess, like, every time she walks back to, you know, get her tickets. Well, and here, here, this episode is also a great preview for, for the Frankie and Johnny episode that's in this, several like, weeks. Yeah, very far away. But, um, I just thought that that was like an interesting. Oh man, uh, I can't wait to watch that though. I haven't, I have not seen that yet. Um, I, I, uh, unlike Callie, I, I really, literally just watched these like a few days before we record the episode. So, I'm so... pick a movie you've seen that you, like, found thought-provoking. That the only film that we've done that for is The Godfather, which I had seen, like, three times pre- prior before we had watched have it. Have you seen all, all of them? I have not seen three yet. Callie's seen it twice. <laughs> I, have, um, I haven't either. It's fine. I but, um, but we, like, we've talked about this before, but, like, you know, you talk about drug stories before, like, when we rewatched The Godfather and I watched it with Callie... This was, like, a few days before, like, she had another slice of cake. So it was the first piece of cake. <laughs> the first piece of cake that I ate that Callie had baked. And I do not recommend watching The Godfather when you are, like, in, like, fucking world on an edible. Not, not a good movie. Yeah, what is this with you? Yeah, you, you see, it's just you get really high and then you watch the worst, both of you. Watch the worst possible things to watch is that mind state. I mean, what is going? You guys have film degrees. You should know exactly. We are. Would, um, isn't that what a film like, degree I, does? You just have like a, a, a compartment of knowledge of like films by like, genre and category. And, yeah, it's like uh, a Netflix Rolodex. Exactly. That's what I imagine your brains are like. Yeah, I'm, I'll just be like, I just took a couple tabs of acid. Time to watch Misery. <laughs> We're not very smart people. Like just because we have film degrees, if anything, the fact that we have film degrees means that we are just like total bimbos, and that's the worst degree. No, you it's can a very try. big accomplishment. I, I well, thank you. Appreciate it. I used to like literally get to do to get degrees in something that's actually interesting and interesting to them. Like I have a lot of respect for that. Did you call it movie class? Did I call it? I probably... I used to be like, I'm on my way to movie class. Because, like, I... That's uh, so fun. Several of my classes, you just, like, watch a two-hour movie and you talk for 45 minutes and then you peace out and you only go to class once a week. Yeah. Oh, that sounds amazing. Nice. That I, sounds amazing. I've, I uh, miss it every day. Especially when I was getting my master's. I was like, I miss when I could just fucking watch movies and... Just bullshit got, for 45 minutes. <laughs> my master's was about books. Yeah, my master's was about uh, archiving, which is, um, yeah, it's a little bit more intensive than fucking yeah. watching films. It's interesting, though. <laughs> I think it's really cool that, like, watching a movie is your fucking homework. Yeah. I had to write a paper about Beetlejuice once, and I got a C. Oh. What? It was fucked up. I want to read this paper now. You still have it. Yeah. Probably on you should put. We will if we could if we could if we could find Callie's Beetlejuice essay. We'll put it up on the Patreon for those who subscribe. Hilarious <laughs> to make someone pay for that. <laughs> pay to read her Beetlejuice. Yeah, you have to pay to read a C grade paper. <laughs> it got yeah seven out of ten. It was my. Oh, well, that's not so bad when you put it that way. 
Still see different other famous people's reactions to the film. Uh, Cher really likes this film. <laughs> Lucille Ball came with her family and hated it. Lucille Ball has <laughs> got her face. <laughs> her husband's fucking Cuban. Like, that, that makes it an extra, like, she probably thought it was racist as fuck because her fucking husband was Cuban. <laughs> yeah, and she, and she hated it because of the uh, graphic violence and language. Um, Dustin, Aw, poor Lucille. She's a wholesome. I know. When I was a kid, I used to think her name was Lucy O'Ball. Like, she was Irish. <laughs> I, um... Like, oh. I don't even know if Irish people are named that, the but, only, yeah. The, the, off. <laughs> the only episode of I Love Lucy I've ever seen, I'm pretty sure, was in our was in Callie and I's TV comedy class. With the chocolates? Yeah, with the chocolates. I never actually watched it, which is funny because I feel like at a certain point, like, in the 80s and stuff, it was, like, rerun all the time, so, like, all those 80s kids, like, Gen X, are like, I love I Love Lucy, but, like, our generation is like, I've never fucking watched it. Dustin Hoffman fell asleep. Well, Dustin Hoffman, this is a running thing that we've talked about on this show. Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino have a huge rivalry, apparently. So I feel like that was just Dustin Hoffman being like, Fuck you, Al Pacino. Oh, me? I, uh, I fell asleep. Uh, writers Kurt Vonnegut Jr. and John Irving were among those who allegedly walked out in disgust after... Kurt Vonnegut hated Scar. Kurt Vonnegut walked out in disgust. That's rich. After That's the uh, chainsaw love... scene. Oh, God, I love that so much. It's so fucking good. Uh, Scorsese turned to Steve Bauer in the middle of the film and told him, you guys are great, but be prepared because they're going to hate it in Hollywood because it's about them. What? <laughs> so Scorsese thinks that this is about Hollywood? I don't get that. I have no idea. I don't know. Well, obviously, I'm not in Hollywood. I only know people. I only am, am you know, I have friends that work in Hollywood, but I'm not a part of Hollywood, and even... I will uh, message all of the people that I know who uh, work on shit um, in the film industry and see if they think Scarface is about them. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah uh, let us know what your Hollywood friends say. Let me just say, though, that this is not one of my favorite Brian De Palma films, but I am a Brian De Palma filmer, uh, film um, apologist. <laughs> I know he gets a lot of shit. Because a lot of his movies, people think, are, like, exploitive or exploitation or whatever. But I love Carrie. I think Carrie's a fucking great film. Um, and I love, one of my favorite movies of all time is Blowout. Starring John Travolta, a guy who works as, a, like, an audio, um, records sounds and stuff for, like, B-movie horror films. And he accidentally records a political assassination and he's, like, trying to prove it. And it's really so, it's so good. But I found out today, though... <laughs> Um, on Twitter, like, right before we filmed this, that apparently Brian De Palma had written a film called Fire that was supposed to star John Travolta about a rock star who was killed, um, a dead rock star or something. It's supposed to be, like, a... Fire was supposed to be a Citizen Kane story about a deceased rock star, a big mystery about whether he had sex on stage. Eventually, he was proven to be impotent and not really dead. <laughs> that was yes. supposed to star yes. John Travolta, and I'm so mad they didn't make that because that movie sounds amazing. <laughs> I just read that Brian De Palma was making Flashdance and dropped out of it to make Scarface. Brian De Palma was supposed to direct Flashdance. That's like a, almost oh my like God. Michael Cimino is supposed to like 
Um, Michael Cimino, who directed The Deer Hunter, was originally supposed to do Footloose, which is fucking ridiculous if you consider that, because he, he's the director who, who did Heaven's Gate, which is, everyone, like, says is, like, the reason why directors, like, new Hollywood movement ended, because he, like, went so over budget, and it was such a huge flop, and, uh, that will actually be, like, probably more relevant once we talk about, uh, Revolution in a couple weeks, but, <laughs> which is another film that Al Pacino starred in that, uh, um, people also point to as, like, the point when New Hollywood ended. <laughs> There's a, like, documentary about Brian De Palma, and they talked a little bit about Scarface, not very much, and the vibe I could feel, even though they worked together later, was that Brian De Palma didn't, he wasn't especially warm or affectionate towards Pacino. Well, and that was because Pacino um, had a completely different vision of Scarface than what he did, because... Brian De Palma wanted to re wanted to basically right. just remake the original nineteen thirties monster Scarface. Have, like, have you no, seen the original? Have either of you seen I haven't, the no, original? unfortunately. The the other thing I wanted to say about Paul De Palma and his uh, his working relationship with Pacino was that it maybe he was specifically frustrated with him in like the shooting of Scarface because in the final, you know, the scenes where there's the shootout mm -hmm. He like grabbed, he grabbed one of the guns by the barrel, and they were shooting blanks on set, so it was still hot, and he burned his hand really bad, and they had to like delay shooting any of his scenes for two weeks. So maybe that's why he like went on to work with him in Carlito's way, because it, maybe it wasn't like a personal dislike. Maybe it was more of a. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to talk about Carlito's way. That's another movie where Al Pacino plays a race that he is not. He yeah. plays a Puerto Rican. This is no surprise, but the film is a major influence behind the Grand Theft Auto franchise. Oh, I, yeah, I wanted to, like, I saw that immediately, especially Vice City. Like, Vice City rips off Scarface so much. We are doing, after Scarface, uh, Revolution. Yeah. His, uh, his accent in Revolution, he's doing, like, an early settler, like, colonial American accent. So it's, like, supposed to be, like, what a New Yorker sounded like in 1776. Mm -hmm. But the film is full of historical inaccuracies, so if his accent's wrong, it's like the least of their worries. It was a British film. It was a British film trying to... Um, talk about the American talk Revolution. Talk about the American Revolution. It was a huge flop when it came. Supposedly, according to Callie, according to Callie, the director's cut is really good, which is the one that I will be watching, so we'll and see. <laughs> it is the first of the Pacino films to make me cry, so... She didn't even cry at Godfather Fredo gets kissed and he's like you made you broke my heart fredo she didn't cry to that yeah so we'll uh we'll talk about that next week um thank you so much for for talking to us about scarface you, you don't have anything you want oh, to plug it was it was a blast <laughs> I, thank you guys for having me i really appreciate it you got anything Bye, you want to uh, plug yana your tweeter yeah follow follow pacino uh pod <laughs> Um, follow Jane and Kelly. That's what I would like to plug and promote. Follow Lil Succubus um, on Twitter, which is Yana. Please follow her. She's one of the funniest people on Twitter. She always has great tweets. I will be kind of cringe. If you but it's great. It's so funny. And I love her. And that's that's what I want to convey, that Yana is loved on this podcast. And, uh, Bless you, your heart for saying that. Thank you. <laughs> you can uh, you can follow me at Static Blue Bat on Twitter, and you can follow Callie at at Callie Bud. Callie, please get her to four hundred followers. Uh, she may have that by the time this episode comes out, but I want her to get four hundred followers because she deserves it. You know, it would be better four twenty.
420. Get her to 420 her followers. 400, 400 to 420 pipeline and followers. It's a steady, it's a steadfast track. Like, you'll get there. I'm constantly um, just, like, getting them and then losing them. So, <laughs> we'll yeah. see. I don't think, I think I'll always just have to ride Jane's Twitter coattails. Well, that's yeah. the end. Next week, Revolution. Get ready. Keep Have fun. <laughs> Keep it locked to the Pacino Pod. <laughs> <laughs>